Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 107 of Haunted Muse, and it features the next installment of my second novel, The Wolf You Feed, which is set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. Okay, so here we go. The Wolf You Feed from the Journal of Frontier Teacher May Ulrich, October 17th, 1858. It is done. This morning, at first light, I did my best to explain to Jonah what Ernest and I agreed. As I sat next to him, I could feel the heat of his fever rising off of his skin like a piece of roasted meat straight out of the oven. Although too weak to speak then, Jonah managed the slightest perceptible mm-hmm when I asked him if he understood what was about to happen and whether he was ready. Then I changed out of my human clothes and wrapped the long woolen cloak around me again so as not to frighten any of the Ute people who might see me moving from teepee to teepee. Chief Ori had thought it best that we perform the transformations alone inside the meeting hall, which was the largest building in the village. That way, if anything went wrong, no one would see. When Jonah saw me pull back the hood of my cloak, our eyes met for a moment, and I knew, at last, we'd made the right decision. Jonah's eyes, still clouded with pain, glittered like black diamonds eager for the relief that the change would offer. His good arm lay on top of the buffalo robe covering him. I took the smallest nip of skin from the pale white flesh inside of his left forearm, swallowing it down and licking the blood clean from the spot as we both waited with our eyes closed. Across my mind's eye, I saw a panorama of Jonah's memories. First, he played with blocks on the wooden floor of his parents' kitchen until his father came stomping in, drunkenly tripped over one and kicked both the blocks and Jonah across the room. Then I felt the panicked beating of his heart as Jonah wrested himself from his father's grasp and ran as fast as he could for the woods. The vision slowed a bit then, and I could feel the glow of happier memories. Jonah in a stand of pines near a stream in what must have been a favorite spot, conversing with birds and squirrels, and coaxing a young fawn to eat from his hand. The day of his mother's murder was there, too, and the pain of it seared like lightning through my consciousness. Not long afterward was the happiness Jonah felt on the days that he taught Sir Gowan riding tricks, the horse enjoying their companionship as much as he did. Near the last, I felt his heartbeat go wild again, not with fear, but with hope and excitement, as I saw myself telling Jonah he wasn't stupid, he just needed glasses. As this final intense memory passed, the heat of the fever coming from his injuries intensified. Jonah's entire body shook with tremors from head to foot. As his arms and legs lengthened, I could see a covering of solid white fur sprouting like grass all over him. The raw and swollen wound of his right arm healed over in an instant, Yet Jonah did not stop, as I had done at roughly twice the size of a normal person. Instead, he kept growing larger and larger, until when he finally rolled over on all four paws, I realized that Jonah could not fully stand up within the meeting hall, 
where his body had lain. Jonah looked down at his massive white paws, the size of parlor chairs, with wondering eyes, and then up at the ceiling, in which the tips of his ears grazed as he sniffed curiously at the rafters. I could hear his thoughts. Jonah worried that he had ruined everything somehow, because he thought he was too big to fit through the door. I tried to reassure him that nothing was amiss and he should lie down. Then I went to fetch Chief Ore. Furrowing his brow and shaking his head as I explained the situation to him, what had happened, Ore said, This cannot be. The great white wolf is not a native. Chepeda, however, seemed to comprehend what had happened. It makes sense, she rationalized that the one who is meant to build a bridge between worlds would have to come from the world that seeks to be dominant. Otherwise, why would they ever agree to cross the bridge with him? Chief Ore accepted this explanation and asked to see Jonah. Once he had done so, immediately Ore fell down upon one knee, whispering a prayer in his native Ute language. Chipeta told me what he'd said was something along the lines of Great Spirit. Forgive me for questioning you. For his part, Jonah looked uneasy with all the attention, and I tried to comfort him so that he wouldn't worry. Jonah lay down with his gigantic head on his paws and wrapped his tail around him. I followed Chief Ore and Chepeda outside and then into another teepee nearby where they were already speaking hurriedly in hushed tones. I accept that it is the Great Spirit's will for this boy to be his manifest, Ore said to me. But given that, are you certain that the doctor is still the right one to guide him? Wouldn't he better be able to learn the ways of our tribe and how to protect them if he were to remain here with us and with you to help guide him? Ernest is a good man with an open heart. I reassured Chief Ore. He has already promised that he will be everything that a father should be for a boy. Plus, Jonah doesn't just need a father figure, but to receive a proper education back east. He's never known anything but cruelty here from his own people, and if he is to be the great negotiator between worlds, Jonah must learn how to speak to white men who are worth speaking to those who would be willing to listen to reason and who might have a real interest in changing things. But what if he goes the other way? Ore replied, his brow furrowing again. What if they teach him to be manipulative as they are and they bend his power so that his will is no longer his own? Chepeda took Ore's hands in hers. The Great Spirit would not have chosen him as the messenger if that were possible. Jonah is a kind and curious boy, intelligent and rational, much wiser than grown men twice his age. Have faith that when the time comes, Jonah will choose the right path. Ore's response to Chipeta's urging was lost to me as a loud commotion had begun outside, along with a cracking sound that was like trees falling in the wind. Rushing out, I saw the entire village gathered around Jonah, chattering nervously. The meeting house in which Jonah had been transformed was sitting off to the side of him, the frame having been pushed up out of the ground. 
Jonah now stood at his full height, almost twenty feet tall, yet wagging his tail cautiously from side to side like an uncertain pup. Seeing my surprise, Jonah's explanation flashed through my brain in a panic. I was just thinking about how much I wanted to be able to stand up and get out, and then the whole thing, it, it just moved. Jonah bent down with pleading eyes, as a dog might, when hoping to avoid being scolded. Still in my wolf, I went over and brushed my much smaller muzzle along the side of his massive one reassuringly, which heartened him some. I looked over at the meeting house, which appeared to be on the verge of collapse, with support beams sticking out every which way. Can you put it back? I thought to Jonah. I'll try, Jonah thought as he stepped carefully out of the now-empty space where the meeting house had once been. His black diamond eyes, a sharp contrast with his sparkling white fur, focused solidly on the building, which began to shake, and then slowly to drag itself back where it had been. Then, as if pushing corks into bottles, the exterior staves slid into the ground. The structure resettled itself into place without a single crack, in the adobe walls. The assembled villagers watched in hushed silence until it was done and broke out in a mixture of prayers and cheers afterward. I saw Chepeda exchange glances with Ore, whose normally austere face had relaxed into a relieved smile. Jonah wagged his tail again and yawned, his huge jaws opening wide as a door. I'm tired, he said. That took a lot of effort. I'm sure it did, I replied, giving him an encouraging bump under the chin with the top of my head. You're just coming down from that fever, too. Why don't you go over that ridge there and lie down? Think of something calming, and the change should happen naturally. And take this. I pulled a blanket drying on a line nearby from someone's wash and dropped it at his feet. Jonah picked it up in his mouth, licking his lips funny as he tasted the wool. You'll need it to cover yourself when you transform back. When you're rested and ready, we can work on earnest later this afternoon. Jonah trotted off as instructed. I went back to my original teepee, came out of my wolf, redressed, and went to see Ernest. When he asked how it went, I laughed and told him we'd gotten much more than we expected explaining what the Utes had thought that Jonah was the special white wolf that they'd been waiting for as the emissary. Ernest was less surprised than I thought he would be. I always knew Jonah was special, Ernest replied, wincing from the pain of his burns as he propped himself up. So what do you think? Do you agree with Ore, or do you think I'm still up to the task? Of course I think you're still up to it. Why? Are you having doubts? Ernest's bandaged hand smoothed the coverlet. Not about Jonah. No, we get along perfectly, and I've always wanted a son. I just wonder what, well, what my wolf will be like. Both of yours seem to reflect what you were inside, and I'm afraid there's just not enough in there for me to have that kind of power. Do you know what I mean? Whether I have the stuff? Ernest, the only reason you got this way, I said, 
indicating his bandages, was because you had the stuff. You came out here to save me. Then you took my telling you no, like a man, and we're still friends. Real friends. Probably the only other one I have right now, other than Jonah. You confronted those men without a weapon. And if you hadn't nearly been burnt to a crisp, I'm sure that you would have been right out there with Carter and me during Jonah's rescue. Of course you have the stuff. A mixture of emotions passed through Ernest's clear blue eyes, some of relief and others of doubt. He stared down at the covers again. I'm honored that you think of me so highly. As your best friend, I don't have another one of those either and that you think well enough of me to be in charge of Jonah, but do you think that we... After all he'd been through, Ernest still couldn't get the words out. We might be what we talked about before, if I'm back whole again, once I come into my wolf. I still can't answer that, I replied, for I knew that I could not lie to him, not only now, but especially after he became part of the pack with Jonah and me. I need time still. I cared so much for Carter. I, I loved him, as we spoke about before. I need time to think about who I am, especially since everything has changed so much. What remains when you're forced to become something totally different than what you were? Ernest met my eyes again. I don't think you're any different at all. More of what you were to begin with, perhaps, but nothing's changed in your essence. Not really, except perhaps confidence, which I think both of us needed a hefty dose of. Ernest gave a little half cough and continued. <clears throat> but I understand, God, more than anyone, I should understand what it means to lose someone suddenly, shouldn't I? Especially when she, he, Ernest shook his head as he corrected himself. He was your first choice. As I said before, take all the time you need in the world. And if, at the end of it, your answer is still no, then I can take it. I'm a big boy. Ernest's face lifted where his eyebrows had been. Big enough to realize that keeping your best friend is the most important thing in the world. Well... That you'll always have for me, I promise. I left Ernest to rest there until that evening when Jonah came riding back up on Sir Gowan. He looked like his old self again, whole and unfevered. Not wanting to cause further commotion, we agreed that Ernest's transformation should take place on the bluff overlooking the village. Now that the Utes had seen both of us and were not afraid, I asked a group of Ore's men to carry Ernest up to the overlook in a wagon. They left without being asked as Jonah and I approached them in our wolves, knowing without asking that we desired to be alone. Before they left, they had unwrapped Ernest as I'd instructed so that the full extent of his injuries were visible. Sitting there in just his shorts on a blanket in the back of the wagon, tears welled up in my eyes as I saw the ravaged welts of his skin that the fire had left. Ernest's chest palms and face were the color and texture of raw meat. No skin left at all. As I met his bright blue eyes, I felt the desperation there. This had to work, or Ernest would kill himself. 
That's all there was to it. Jonah stepped up to him, looking for a spot of skin on his forearm to take for the transformation, but seeing none, he looked nervously at Ernest. Here, Ernest said, grimacing as he lifted his charred arm across the remains of his chest, revealing the intact strip of pale, freckled flesh just above his elbow on his tricep. Using just his front two incisors, which were still the size of playing cards, Jonah and his wolf took a nip of flesh, just the bit that was needed, and swallowed it. Ernest squeezed his eyes together tightly, his face twisting in pain as Jonah placed his tongue over the wound to stop the bleeding. The transformation was nothing short of miraculous. As his bones began to lengthen, I watched as Ernest's skin regenerated first, recovering his raw flesh. The large, curved nose that dominated his face straightened into a long, thin muzzle. Then his fur, mixed red and gray like his human hair, came in over it, save for a large patch of white on his lower jaw, throat, chest, and the insides of his front legs, all of the places where the fire had taken away his original human skin. His ruined hands became two white-stockinged paws, and Ernest marveled at them as the transformation was completed. All in all, he looked something like a very large fox. A red wolf! Ernest exclaimed, enthusiastically circling his tail as he examined himself from head to toe. <laughs> I should have known! We spent some time together comparing what it felt like for each of us, but I could tell that Ernest, for all of his excitement, was just as exhausted as Jonah had been. We agreed that we should all re-transform, rest for a few hours, and then we'd reconvene at midnight for our first hunt together. Jonah trotted off happily, but as Ernest turned to me, his eyes were concerned. I heard his worried thoughts that, back in his human form, his body would still be a mass of scars. Without speaking, I knew that Ernest wanted to be left alone to see what would result, so I followed Jonah back to the village. It turns out we needn't have been concerned. Ernest took a long time to calm down and face himself in the clear waters of the pooled stream so that he could return to human form. I was elated when I heard at last the wave of relief that flashed through his thoughts into mine as he caught the first glimpse of his face. I've never been so glad to see this old freckled mug in my whole life. So eager was he to display to us that, indeed, his entire upper body had been restored to its original state, that Ernest had walked all the way back from the ridge barefoot in human form. It took him over an hour. The blanket from the wagon swathed around his lower half, trailing in the dust behind him, he walked like a man in a daze. As Ernest toddled off to rest in one of the teepees, I felt thoughts pass between him and Jonah, remnants of the bond of common memory that they had forged during Ernest's transformation. I'm sorry all those other boys made fun of you when you were little, calling you speckled trout face. That was really mean. Trout face is better than no face, but I appreciate the sympathy, Ernest returned, still clearly giddy from it all. Later that evening, once we'd all transformed back into our wolves, I took them hunting. We tracked down a herd of elk grazing nearby. Jonah spooked them by revealing himself too early, so we had to wait until almost sunrise, before finding an old bull that was easy to pull down. Their reaction to feeling the rush of memories course through the elk 
as the last of his blood ebbed out was the same as mine had been, pure gratitude for the miracle of knowledge that this other life had given us. This is the end of May Ulrich's October 17th journal entry. Be sure to tune in next time to The Wolf You Feed here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.